I see compassion from when, even when a, a child like my granddaughter will see someone who needs something and will walk up to them. Besides my church, um, my wife, she is the most compassionate person I have ever met in my entire life. And she has taught me so much about compassion because I didn't have a lot of it when I was in the world um, and was a part of that. I didn't really know what compassion was. So if I ever am not compassionate, somebody needs to slap me and tell me, remember what your wife does. Because that's where I see compassion basically every day. I guess like a lot of our world, like there's not a lot of compassion or like anything like compassion, empathy, sympathy. There's like none of that, I guess. Oh man, our world needs so much compassion. We all have to understand each other. Because if we can't understand each other, then who are we going to understand? One way to become more compassionate is to submit yourself to the things of Christ. If we're talking in the secular world, a lot of compassion is done. It's not called compassion. It's called philanthropy. And it a lot of times is shown it is, it is helping other people. But a lot of times it is shown as, look at what I've done or look at what my group has done. And people can get better about it if they would just take away the what is it about me and truly give without expecting anything back. Compassion, I mean, it's a feeling, but it's also a choice. You have to do it. And in order to get good at something, you always have to do it over and over. And sometimes that means doing it when it doesn't, um, when it's not easy or when it doesn't feel good or when you think it might be too hard or something you don't have the strength to do. Um, you kind of just have to do it anyway um, and hone that habit just like any other. I see compassion every day, not just with my wife, but in my church. And it's something I still struggle with. And I know that, I, I realize I do, because I still have a lot of the world inside me I'm trying to weed out. But it's something I want to give. You know, it's not, I get a lot of compassion myself from people in my church, you know, from my wife, from my family. I want to be able to give it unconditionally to anybody who needs it. So if anybody that thinks that, that we got it all figured out, no. There are a lot of us that are still trying to find the answers and trying to find the way Jesus wants us to do it. And, you know, we're trying. <laughs> Pretty wise people in our church, don't we? Yes. I think that this is my favorite of the six weeks of videos that we have because it speaks to this idea of compassion not just being something that you can flip the on switch of, right? It's something, it's a practice, just like any other, a habit that we form in our lives. As we do it more and more often, as we have eyes to see it more and more often, we continue to get better at it. And, and as Larry said, it's something that none of us are perfect at, right? But being honest with that and striving together to be people who are more compassionate, more like Jesus, that is what this is all about. And so today we are finishing up this Embodied Compassion series, um, and we are going to finish it up by looking at a story that I would expect that a majority of us have heard at least one time. Um, it is probably one of the most popular stories in all of scripture, um, and it is something that whether you are familiar with the Bible or not, you have probably heard the story or at least ideas from this story, um, and it has... The, the title of it has been popularized in a, a lot of different ways. You know, it's, it's used to describe somebody that um, does a good deed for a stranger. Or they return a lost wallet. They help fix a flat tire. Um, they give somebody the Heimlich maneuver if they're choking. Um, but it's also a title that is, has been given to um, some laws of, of where if you help somebody who is in some kind of 
emergency medical situation um, where you provide assistance if they are ill or injured or otherwise incapacitated, um, they have this law where you are unable to be sued um, if you help them out. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us have, have heard this story and know this idea, um, whether it's from sermons, from Sunday school lessons, from just reading it in scripture, um, but it's a story that I think preaches itself. So I'm going to read it and then we're going to head out and get an early start on Super Bowl Sunday. Sound good? Okay, I'm glad there was not anybody that was excited about that. Um, If you would turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 10, um, we're going to be reading a story. How many of you know what story we're reading? The Good Samaritan, yes. Uh, Would you turn with me to chapter, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, um, and would you stand with me as we honor the word of God, reading it together. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, so he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near dead. Now it just so happened that a priest was was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to, bandage, went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to an innkeeper. He said, Take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one... Of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves. Then the legal expert said, The one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I can't read this story without getting a picture in my mind. And that is a picture of Junior Asparagus wearing a pot on his head, and Larry the Cucumber with a shoe on his head. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, a few of you. Veggie Tales, right? Veggie Tales. I absolutely love Veggie Tales. I love Phil Vischer, the creator of Veggie Tales. Um, and it's very difficult for me to read this story without being reminded of the classic rivalry of the people of Flibber Lou and Gibberty Lot. Uh, And the theme song that goes with it, anybody know? Love your neighbor. And so, yeah, okay. I won't sing the whole thing. Um, But even though Veggie Tales, I think, is a great way to get to know some of the basics of Bible stories, it's not the full picture. And if we use it as the full picture, especially, I think, of this story, but really any biblical story, 
um, it's not quite the right lens to use. Um, and I don't think pulling a cucumber out of a hole in the ground is quite the radical act of compassion that the Good Samaritan has here. And it's, it doesn't quite encompass the just far-reaching aspect of, of God's love and care for us. Um, so we're going to run through this story, the non-VeggieTales version of it. I apologize if that's what you were expecting from the youth pastor preaching, but that's not what you get. So there is a lawyer, a legal expert that comes to Jesus and he, he, it's, the text says that he stands up and he's ready to test Jesus. And if we've read other stories, we know that, oh boy, this is not going to turn out well for this guy, right? We've seen this story before. Um, this lawyer, he is testing Jesus, but not, he's not asking for any kind of truth to be revealed to him. He's not hoping to learn anything from Jesus. He's not trying to gain any knowledge or truth. He is essentially asking Jesus this trick question that will drag Jesus into one of the, the hotly debated topics of that day, um, one of these common Jewish disputes. But Jesus isn't fooled. Jesus is never fooled. Uh, and as we will see throughout today's text and message, um, any attempt to justify who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God, who's in and who's out of deserving compassion, any attempt to do that, who we can include or exclude is just flat out wrong. It's, it's the opposite of what Jesus was all about. It's the opposite of the character of God. It goes against God's heart and God's compassion for people. So this lawyer comes before Jesus and he is trying to bait him into this argument. He's ready to utilize the law to, to back up um, his, his argument and to catch Jesus in this kind of gotcha moment. And he says, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, he knows this man, right? He's a lawyer. He's a legal expert. He knows the law. So Jesus is like, I don't know. You tell me, right? Which is just classic Jesus. He's asked a question. He responds with a question of his own. He turns it back on them. He, he makes sure that they are understanding what they are asking of him. And flash back to the lawyer. And he's like, wait. Jesus just stole my line. I was going to appeal to the law. And now Jesus is telling me, okay. So he, he summarizes, actually, this is a, a common summary that we see in other gospels of Jesus using for uh, summarizing the law. They are, they are up in these, in these two commandments, wrapped up in these two commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is how this man responds to Jesus when Jesus asks him, what the law says. And Jesus says, excellent, cool, good answer. That is a great answer. Let's go with that. Like, yeah, just do that. You obviously know what you're talking about. And this guy is a little bit taken aback by uh, this strategy that Jesus is using. But it says that this lawyer, he, he wants to be proven right. He wants to, he wants to have the upper hand. He's in some way, he's trying to justify how he relates to other people and this perspective that he has, this attitude that he has toward others. And in trying to figure out who he can include or exclude, he chooses this new tactic and he says, so what exactly do you mean by neighbor, right? Who exactly fits in that category? Surely it's not everybody that fits in that category, right? Answer that one, Jesus. Who do you consider to be a neighbor? And this is a common question that I think is, is pretty common even our, in our world today, 
right? And when we talk about immigration policies, when we talk about politics, when we talk about racial or gender um, inequality, when we, when we talk about these things, especially in the political sphere, especially when we are talking uh, an election year like we are currently in, this idea of who is my neighbor is a common one. Whether it's that clear of a question or not, that is what is being argued constantly and what is dividing people constantly. And it's a question that relates to how any one person relates to another person or how one people group relates to another people group. And Jesus, to answer this question, another classic Jesus move, he answers it with a story, a riddle of sorts. And he does this quite a lot uh, through the gospels of answering a question with a story. Um, It's assumed that this isn't a true story necessarily, but it's well within the means of historical realistic fiction, right? Um, It could have happened. But Jesus is telling this story, this parable, And he says, a man is traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked briefly about this Jericho road. Um, And the road between, it's the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. Um, It's well known as a very dangerous, treacherous stretch of road. It's it's winding. There's lots of of bends in the road. Um, It has quite a bit of elevation. So from 1,200 feet above sea level in Jerusalem to 2,200 feet, 1,200 feet above, 1,200 feet below sea level in Jericho. So it is fairly steep. It's winding. It's dusty. There's lots of bends in the road. And it was a common place where thieves and Roberts, robbers, not Roberts, sorry, Roberts out there, robbers uh, were, were waiting to, to steal from people, to leave them beaten up and bruised. Um, It was often called the way of blood because of the violence that happened at different points along this journey. Um, It's a great place if you are looking to be beat up and robbed. Uh, This guy was not looking for that, but he found that as fate would have it. And he is robbed of everything, right? His belongings, his garments, his dignity. He is is left there. It says beaten half to death. And he is laying there, obviously in need of some help, obviously requiring some attention. No guarantee that anyone will find him along this path. Um, But sure enough, two men come along. There's a priest and then a little bit later, a Levite who are walking along the road and they come across this this man. And these guys are kind of the the best of the best. They they are the, the moral standard of living as examples of godly people, right? They are of the highest religious and moral standing. And yet they come across this man laying on the side of the road. And not only do they not help him, they cross over to the other side. And I don't know how wide this road is. It doesn't seem like it would be way far away, but the symbolism of that is pretty great, right? That is a, a pretty profound thing to say that they crossed over to the other side of the road to avoid this man. And we can think up all sorts of reasons as to why they did this. And there is, there's biblical reason why these men who serve in the temple would have wanted to remain clean so that they could participate in the service in the temple. Um, There's reasons why they would not approach even somebody that looked like a dead body because they did not want to 
you know, corrupt themselves or, or um, yes, make themselves unclean. And so there's reasons that they might have avoided this man, but regardless of what their motivation is, both men pass by without offering assistance, without asking if the man's okay, without checking to make sure he's still alive. And in telling this story, Jesus is noting that what's important is um, not their reason for failing to act, but what's important is that they are lacking something. And what they are lacking is this same idea that the lawyer who's asking this question is lacking. And it's exactly what Jesus is about to reveal the Samaritan man possesses. And this, this would have been a slight, slightly shocking story for the lawyer and, and whoever else was around there, the Jewish people that were around Jesus at that time. It would have been shocking to hear Jesus talk about priests and Levites in kind of a, a negative light. Um, or in, in a way that they are lacking something. But even more than that, the real major shock of this story is that they would say, that Jesus would say that this Samaritan had something that the priest and the Levite were lacking. If you know this story, you probably have heard that Jews and Samaritans despised each other. Jews viewed Samaritans as these people who were outsiders, who worshiped falsely, who desecrated their religion, who twisted scripture to, to allow for certain things. They were untrustworthy. Um, and it's probably no surprise then that the opposite was true, that Samaritans despised Jews as well. There was not a whole lot of love between the two. And yet this Samaritan man, he sees this man in dire need of rescue. And it says that he is moved with compassion. This is in stark contrast to the other two men who they don't have compassion. They literally cross over to the other side and continue on their way. The Samaritan embodies the compassion of God by caring for the man, by bandaging his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He cares for him at the inn. And the following day, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, two days worth of wages, which they assume would have covered almost two months worth of a stay there. He gives him this kind of money up front saying, do whatever you need to do to get this man back to full health. And when I return, if it's any more than this, I will pay whatever is owed. And then Jesus finishes this story by doing what lots of good teachers do. He immediately checks for understanding. He asks the question, which of these three guys was a neighbor to the man? And if you notice, this is not the same question that the man was asking to begin with, right? Jesus is reframing this question because the question of who is my neighbor is not the right question in Jesus's mind. It's the wrong question to be asking because who is my neighbor is about who, not about how. So the who is a given, right? If we, if we read other teachings of Jesus, if we understand who Jesus is and what he was about, we understand that this, this is for all people. That's a given. Jesus isn't quiet on that front. What Jesus cares about is how. He wants this man to, to dig into identifying what it actually means to be a neighbor or what it actually looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your neighbor well. 
And Jesus identifies this and he reveals it to the lawyer that the root of his problem is not a misunderstanding of who his neighbor is or a a picking and choosing of who his neighbor is, but it's how is he neighboring well? He moves from this question of who receives this love or who should receive this love to who should be giving this love and how they should be giving this love. It's a responsibility not in who to serve, but in how to serve. And this is where we're going to be going for the rest of the time that we have together, is what is Jesus trying to communicate to you, to me, to us, about how we are called to love our neighbors well, to love our neighbors as ourselves? Where is the Holy Spirit convicting me with how I am failing to neighbor well? How is Jesus shaping and forming my heart to be more like his, to be more like one that embodies this compassion. Uh, There's a man by the name of Jim Becker who served in the Korean War and he, sorry, he returned home in 1952 from the Korean War back to his home in Wisconsin and he uh, quickly became a faithful fan of his somewhat local team, the Green Bay Packers. How many Packers fans out there? Oh, I'm sorry, Greg. Uh, it, the Seahawks weren't any better, so. Uh, but he became this, the fan of the Green Bay Packers. And he was a, was a husband and a father to a family that was growing. He eventually had 11 children with his wife. Um, and so in the budget, there was not a whole lot of money to go towards buying tickets to go to football games. And so rather than taking from his paycheck or from, from their budget, he decided, I'm going to find an, another way to make this money to get the tickets for the game. And he found a local blood bank that would give him $15 for every pint of blood he donated. He could donate once a week to donate blood for $15. As luck would have it in that day, tickets were a whole lot cheaper to football games. It was $12 for a ticket. So he would go donate a pint of blood, and then he would be able to go to the football game that week with the money that he had and have a little bit left over. And he did this regularly for 50 years. Ticket prices changed, but he did this regularly for over 50 years. And it made it possible for him to attend hundreds of Packers games for the small, the small price of a pint of his blood. Um, But it wasn't until 1975, so over 20 years after he first started this, that he was given some shocking news about his blood. His doctors diagnosed him with a blood disorder called hemochromatosis. It's this genetic mutation in which the body absorbs too much iron. And the iron lands itself in the gut, and there's this toxic buildup of iron um, that kind of shuts down organs. It can lead to... um, early death, it can lead to diabetes, it can lead to heart failure, liver failure, um, all of that. And his dad had actually died of this condition when he was 43 years old, and he hadn't shown any symptoms of this disorder until just a couple of days before his death. When Jim was 45, his company, the company that he worked for, gave him this fairly routine physical questionnaire and, and part of it went into, you know, family health history. And, um, it came up that his dad had passed away from this blood disorder, hemochromatosis. 
which led to some blood tests to find out that Jim had dangerously high iron levels. Um, But what was interesting about Jim's condition is that he had accidentally been putting into practice the only known way of relieving this, of, of treatment for hemochromatosis. Because doctors believe that the only treatment for this is bloodletting, which historically they've used leeches and, and things of that nature. Um, but Jim had been donating blood once a week, a pint of blood, which is almost exactly what, what they would do if he had gone into the hospital for this. Um, he had been doing that for over 20 years. And so he still needed treatment and his, the blood that he had donated, it's not poisonous or anything like that. Like they could use it for other, other patients. Um, but over these 20 plus years, this habit, this routine that he had started allowed him to, to change who he was, to rehabilitate himself in a way of keeping him healthy. And I, I don't tell you this because it's Super Bowl Sunday and it's a football story. Um, but, and I also don't tell you this because I think you should donate blood, but I think you should donate blood. Uh, I tell you this because there's, there's some powerful truth there, right? That regular practices, regular habits change us. They transform us. For, for Jim, it was this regular habit of donating blood so that he could go to football games. It wasn't about his health. It wasn't even necessarily about the blood that, that other people were getting, the people he was helping. It was so that he could make money to go to a football game as a father of 11. But this routine of giving blood, it changed him, right? It kept him living. And this is true of our spiritual lives as well. There's a, a quote from an old preacher you may have heard of named Charles Spurgeon. And he says, when the law demands of us, or, sorry, what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. And this is at the, the crux of our text here. This this lawyer talking to Jesus, for, for the lawyer, this, the law is his habit, right? He knew the law. He was well-versed in the law. He knew it from cover to cover. It played an incredibly important role in his life. But he didn't seem to understand it or to grasp the real purpose of this law. The law was not meant to be followed just for following sake, just to check the checkbox of doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. He didn't understand that this law was meant to produce something to transform him and to transform those who followed it. Um, In youth group, we have, I don't know if you can read that. Um, We have a poster downstairs. Uh, These are what I like to call our identity markers um, of our youth group. As I was working to figure out how to establish the kind of youth group that I wanted to lead, the kind of youth group that I thought was, was best for growing up disciples of Jesus. I thought of a thousand rules that I could put in place, right? Of not talking when Pastor Sheldon's talking, not talking when other people are talking, right? There, I, I could list out a whole lot of rules that I thought this would be very helpful so that we can all grow. We can all grow closer to Jesus. I could have made a giant poster that filled every single wall of the youth room downstairs, right? But rules, when you lay out the exact scenarios, rules are easy to find loopholes to, right? Rules are easy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm following it, but I'm kind of 
twisting it this way to make it better for me, right? It's easy to follow the letter of the law, but not the purpose behind it. It's easy to justify doing things a little bit differently because they are black and white, cut and dry rules. The idea behind these identity markers, um, my goal was to give meaningful rules that then our, our actions and our habits could be grounded in. So instead of, of something like, for example, our, our teens love playing the game Mafia. I won't explain what Mafia is. But instead of making a rule that was something like, uh, don't make fun of somebody that splits their pants when they are trying to dodge the Mafia. The rule is, number two, honor one another. Honor one another. Um, or instead of, uh, let's see, arguing with Pastor Sheldon about the rules of mafia, the rule is encourage fun. Let's, let's be positive people and let's encourage fun. The, the idea of these is simple. Um, at, at least that's the idea. They're simple rules that can then be applied to the situations of life, right? They are markers of our identity of who we are, of who we are being shaped and formed to be, rather than just a box that we can check off if we did it or didn't do it. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to the lawyer, right? The, the law is not this means to an end. It's not a way of earning a ticket into heaven or earning this eternal life that he is asking about. It's a way of cultivating this deeper heart for loving God, for loving others. But the lawyer still doesn't seem to grasp what Jesus is trying to do because he is asking this question, who is my neighbor? He's trying to fit his ideas of who to include and who to exclude into his understanding of the scripture. And when we do that, we are slaves to the law. As several biblical authors put it, specifically Paul. But Jesus doesn't let the lawyer stay in this mindset, stay with this attitude. Jesus doesn't help us justify our way of viewing the world. Jesus changes it and transforms it and shapes it to be the way that he views the world. He doesn't tell the lawyer this parable so that then he can be like, okay, I think I get it, Jesus. The next time I'm on the Jericho road, if somebody is beaten up and look like they're half dead, I'll ask them if they're okay. He's not making this just prescriptive, specific situation that the next time this happens, you'd act in this way. Jesus is telling this parable so that the lawyer will realize how the law of loving his neighbor as himself is played out in these radical ways in his own life. There's a passage in 1 John 4. It says, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. After all, those who don't love their brothers or sisters whom they have seen can hardly love God whom they have not seen. This commandment we have from him, those who claim to love God ought to love their brother and sister also. I fear that in our world today, we have too many people who say that they love God and hate their brothers or sisters. We have too many people in our world today that claim to be believers and followers of Jesus and act just like the priest and the Levite. I confess that I do that from time to time. But what would it look like for us to live in a world where God's compassion was this identity marker of his followers? Where those who claim to follow Jesus actually 
followed Jesus and actually embodied this compassion that he showed in radical ways during his time on earth? What would our world be like if we were truly like the Samaritan in this story? Instead of passing by those in need, we simply stop and ask if they're okay. Instead of waiting for them to ask for our help, as I confessed is hard for me sometimes a couple of weeks ago, we see the needs that are right in front of us. We have eyes to see the need. Instead of thinking, I, I wouldn't know how to help that person, we stop and say, how can I help you? Is there something that I can do to help you? Instead of thinking that we don't have enough time because our world is far busier than it ever has been, we decide to make time in our schedule. Instead of wanting to keep things to ourselves, to hoard what time and, and money and objects we have and keep them to ourselves so that we have what we perceive to be a better life, we offer those things sacrificially. Compassion is what I like to call simple heart. It's hard, right? It's hard because it forces us to be uncomfortable. It forces us to, to give up things that we don't want to give up, that we want to keep to ourselves. It forces us to give when we would f much rather receive. But it's also simple because it's ultimately a choice. We can choose to follow Jesus or we can choose to follow ourselves. It's a choice to offer others what I believe is our most valuable and our most accessible items, resources, our time and our attention, right? We hear all the time that time is money. And we hear, or we, we see all the time that, that millions of things are, are vying for our attention at every moment of every day. And so when we stop whatever we have going on in life, when we stop and offer our time and our attention to somebody else, you have no idea the, the value that that communicates to them, how much you value that person by saying, this time and my full attention are on you. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? Compassion is simple hard. And this Samaritan didn't just have compassion Right? We've talked about that every week of this series. He didn't just feel pity for the guy and move on. But this compassion, he showed it. He lived it. He embodied it. He took action. And I want to give you some super practical ways that I see in here the, the Samaritan man living this out. Practical ways that I think can be some of these identity markers for us in our attempt to embody the compassion of Jesus Christ. The first thing, he stepped into the mess. When others were walking by on the other side of the road, trying to avoid this man, he approached the man. He stepped toward the man and he gave him that time and that attention to step into the messiness of this guy's life. So, literally physically messy, but also there's probably some other mess in that guy's life having just been beaten up and robbed. He didn't know what had happened to put the guy in this place. 
He didn't know if he was putting himself in danger as well. He didn't even know the extent to which he would have to give of himself for this man. And yet he entered into the messiness of life with him. He stepped into the mess. The second one is he mended the broken. He used wine and oil. Um, He cared for the man's wounds. Wine and oil are likely things that he would have already had with him. Um, Wine would have been um, this kind of antiseptic for treating the man's wounds. And the oil helped to soothe the wounds, to ease the pain. And in mending this guy's brokenness, I think it shows that compassion is practical. Compassion is tangible. Compassion is the simple act of mending the broken, the simple hard act of mending the broken. You can't prepare for it, right? You use what you have in whatever ways you can to mend the broken. And the third thing is he gave generously. He sits him on his own donkey and takes him to an inn. So he is walking alongside. He pays two days wages plus any extra in the future that's needed to get this man healthy, right? First of all, he has, he has already stopped for this man. He has interrupted whatever else he had going on in life. He interrupted his own plans, his own journey that he is on to enter into this guy's messiness. Then he sacrificially allows this man to ride on his donkey while he is walking in the dusty path through this winding, um, highly elevated road. And then he pays for two months' stay. He pays two full days' wages, which is not cheap. It's not an incredible amount, but it's not a small amount. He pays of his own finances to bring this man back to health. And he has no expectation of any kind of return from this guy. He's expecting that when he returns, this man will be gone, and whatever bill is left over, he will cover. There's no expectation that this man will someday do the same for him. There's no expectation of any kind of grand gesture from this guy. He is simply giving generously. Step into the mess. Mend the broken. Give generously. The worship team can come back up now. Step into the mess. Mend the broken. Give generously. These are tangible actions These are authentic signs of how we neighbor well, how we love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus's idea of neighbor is not the one who is acting in compassion or is the one who is acting in compassion. It's not the one who is needing compassion. We shouldn't be asking who our neighbor is. We should be asking how we can neighbor well. Because being good neighbors is, as Jesus ends this passage with, going and doing likewise, right? To follow Jesus and do these compassionate, this compassionate care as Jesus did it and as he taught. So who is our neighbor? It is any and all people who are in need of compassion. But the real question is, how do we neighbor well? And that is by offering our compassion to others by acting in this selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, stepping into the mess, mending the broken, and giving generously. 
As 1 John 3.16 says, For this is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is the simple hard act of embodied compassion.